Graham Chapman, co-author of the Parrot Sketch, is no more. He has ceased to be. Bereft of life, he rests in peace. He's kicked the bucket, hopped the twig, bit the dust, snuffed it, breathed his last, and gone to meet the great head of light entertainment in the sky. And I guess that we're all thinking how sad it is that a man of such talent, of such capability for kindness, of such unusual intelligence, should now so suddenly be spirited away at the age of only 48 before he'd achieved many of the things of which he was capable and before he'd had enough fun. Well, I feel that I should say nonsense. Good riddance to him, the freeloading bastard, I hope he's proud. <laughs> and the reason I feel I should say this he would never forgive me if I didn't, if I threw, threw away this glorious opportunity to shock you all on his behalf. <laughs> Anything for him but mindless good taste. From Chicago, this is The Unenthusiastic Critic, a podcast about destroying your marriage one movie at a time. Welcome to The Unenthusiastic Critic. I'm Michael McDonough. I write about film and television at unaffiliatedcritic.com. Joining me today, farting as always in my general direction, is my lovely wife, Nakia, also known as The Unenthusiastic Critic. Hello. <laughs> On today's episode, we're celebrating Holy Week the irreverent way, with Nakia's first viewing of Monty Python's Life of Brian. And Nakia, I think let's let's just talk about Monty Python a little bit. Okay. Uh, I think early in our relationship, I probably made you watch Monty Python mm -hmm. and the Holy Grail mm -hmm. to the extent that the unenthusiastic critic is about getting the geeky references and the <laughs> lines that are quoted incessantly. That really is the Rosetta Stone. That's the, the font of all knowledge, that movie. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, remember, I don't remember laughing hysterically. That's another one that I feel like we could we could revisit. No, I'm, I mean, I got, I don't you think know, you remember anything about it, probably. Coconuts, the rabbit, <laughs> bring out your dead, got it. It's all in there. Um, but yeah, I mean, yeah, I... <laughs> The Monty Python thing, you have you have made a diligent effort. I don't think I've made a thorough effort. You've it's been a... pretty haphazard. Um, well, we watched Holy Grail. Yeah. And you also uh, made me watch a few of the sketches. So I've seen the dead parrot sketch. <laughs> I've seen the dirty fork sketch. I've seen the lumberjack sketch. Uh, the, what was it? The argument sketch. Uh, -huh. uh The one with like... Something about twits running a race. <laughs> the upper class twit of the year. Sure. So, you know, I feel, I, you know, you gave me uh, some highlights. <laughs> and I will fully admit that it is funny, obviously. I, I don't have the sort of rabid Monty Python love that a lot of people seem to have for that that brand. <laughs> All right. So let's, let's, let's do a little background here. So, Monty Python, the TV series aired between 1969 and 1973 on the BBC. Uh, I think there's 45 episodes total. Then they went on to make a total of four movies of varying quality. And I think it was in 1974, the show started airing in America on PBS. And that's where I discovered it. That's where my friends discovered it. And this is, I when you say you don't have the reaction to the brand, mm -hmm. I think it just didn't get you in its formative years like mm -hmm. it got so many of us. But should it have to, I guess would be my question. If it was this sort of, and I'm not arguing that it isn't because obviously the, you know, everyone believes that Monty Python is sort of the end all be all when it comes to comedy. I mean, yes. Famously, John Lennon said he would rather have been in Monty Python than in The Beatles. 
Okay. Now that's an easy thing to say after you've been in the Beatles, but <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> <laughs> we we will come back actually to the Beatles later. Okay. Uh, but everybody who has done comedy since then has has said what a huge influence right, Monty right. Python was on them. Matt Grenning says it's a huge influence on The Simpsons. Mm-hmm. Obviously, SNL was a direct response to Kids Monty Python. Gets in the hall. Key and Peele cited as a huge influence. The South Park creators cited as one of their biggest influences. SCTV, Stephen Colbert, John Oliver. Like, all of these people, if you right. ask them, the first thing they're going to say is Monty Python. Right. But that thing about discovering it, and it seems to be universal. Here's one of your patron saints talking about it. Okay. Uh, this is RuPaul <laughs> on Mark Barron's What the Fuck <laughs> podcast. And... Rue says, talking about his childhood, I always thought outside the box. I always could see colors that other people couldn't see. I was always looking for my tribe, and the closest thing I'd gotten to that was Monty Python on PBS. Really? I was like, oh my god, these are my people. They did dress up as ladies. (laughs) Well, there is that. But he goes on to talk about just the, you know, just the absurdity, the irreverence, and that thing of just looking outside the box all the time Mm -hmm. and he says there are people who believe the matrix lock stock and barrel and the people who understand oh this is all a construct this is all illusion those are the two types of people and i was always looking for the other people who were going this is all illusion Mm -hmm. and that's what he says he found in monty python and then mark Marin talks about what i was talking about which is that that feeling of just Because it was, I mean, this was all pre-internet. This was all pre, you know, networked nerd culture. Right. And it really was something at that point that you just stumbled upon Mm -hmm. on PBS. And you were like, what the fuck is this? Right. Like, who are these people? Mark Maron said, you almost felt weird watching that. You were almost like, does anyone even know this is on? (laughs) Like, is this allowed? (laughs) It was just that thing. And then if you found, like, the one other person at school who had seen it, that was the shibboleth. Right. That was just the connection for life that you had bonded over this weird, sometimes disturbingly weird thing <laughs> that you had just found late at night on PBS. Mm-hmm. Um, so that that's the part I feel like you missed out. And it's not saying that, no, you can't go back and appreciate it now right. and recognize it as genius now. Right. But I, I do think that part of it is probably what you missed out on. I mean, that, it's, that's possible, um, because in comedy, I do tend to like the more sort of, I like absurdist things. I like punchlines that aren't actually punchlines. I, I enjoy sort of transgressive comedy. Mm-hmm. Um, so, again, on an intellectual level, I completely understand it. I absolutely get why people ride or die from Monty Python, but I don't feel it in my soul. And I was actually thinking about it, and it sort of reminds me of the way I feel about church Mm, um okay so i grew up in the church like went to sunday school before sunday service went to uh bible study you know was on the usher board like the whole fucking thing Mm -hmm. right and and i brought the same sort of nerdiness to church that i had in school which is like i've read the bible many times and can, (laughs) can and you know Went to Bible summer school, the whole thing. And so I got it on an intellectual level. I understood why people were connecting with it. I understood the importance of it in people's lives. But sitting in that pew and listening to it being sort of spoken to me, I was like, okay, yeah, I get this, I get this, I get this. <laughs> but there was nothing. Like, I was not the, praise dancing. The spirit never the took The spirit you. just never took me over. And so I was sitting there feeling like, oh, God, my soul is evil. Like, I am bad. <laughs> and that's kind of how I feel about my depression. I was like, maybe I just don't fucking understand comedy. But so that's, it, it's sort of that similar thing of just like, I, if you lay the elements out for me and I watch it, I was like, I get why people, you know, love this, mm-hmm. but it doesn't excite me really in any way. And maybe again, it is because I came at it late right? where I'm now, you know, we're like post, post, post irony right. at this point. I mean, it, it, the show is 50 years old right. at this point almost. But it isn't. But when we watch the sketches that we watch, I don't think it's dated or anything. Mm-hmm. I don't think it. It reads as stale. It still feels really smart and really sharp, but it just doesn't move me mm-hmm. in any way. I know when we were watching the uh, complaint or the argument sketch, right? and I brought up how it reminded me of the sketch, the SNL sketch between Chevy Chase and Richard and Pryor. Richard Pryor. Mm-hmm. And I was like, 
and I love that fucking sketch. Yeah. Because it's so transgressive and the energy in it is so weird and like at any moment it feels like it can break out into a fight and yeah. it's just a very it's like one of the like perfect comedy sketches to me. And the point is though is that that was sort of birthed out of that Monty Python. Right. Thing. I doubt that would exist right. without Monty so Python. I absolutely recognize that it is in the DNA of a lot of the comedy that I love that does touch me very deeply. Mm-hmm. But for some reason, Monty Python doesn't. And I don't know why. Okay. Is it, I mean, is part of it just the fundamental Britishness of it? I don't think so, because I, I've i watched British comedy before and thought it was funny. Um, like, I watched the original Office and I didn't mm. have a problem, sort of. I didn't feel removed from it just because it was a British comedy. I mean, with a lot of it... I don't know that any of it was inherently British, and maybe I haven't watched a lot of it, but like the dead parrot sketch, that just works. In any culture. In any, yeah, right. <laughs> like, if anybody, like, the, the beats of it are pretty much the same. <laughs> and even the um, the twit race, uh-huh. though that's a very sort of specific British archetype, it's basically a send-up of the class system, right? Right. So, like, and that works, like, right. Inconsiderate douchebags. Right. So that sort of works no <laughs> right. matter in whatever context. So I don't think that that's it. Uh, I really, I honestly, I don't know <laughs> what it is. Okay. Um, a lot of people write about Python as being this, like, counterculture thing, mm-hmm. equivalent, really, to the punk movement and all of these other things that were happening at the time. Right. This is Taylor Parks writing in The Quietus. He says, Very rarely was Python political, but it was a protest, all right. A protest against bullshit and bullying, sloppy thinking and humbug, a gleeful assault on Philistinism and suitery. What's more, it was weird. Not wacky, not delightfully loopy, really, really weird. At its best, Python could be a disturbing experience, disquieting, disordered, disruptive. Something close to Dada. It was not just absurd, but absurdist. Cosmic satire, a mockery of meaning. That sounds like something I'd be totally into. Right? That's what I th- <laughs> keep thinking. I'm like, where are you with this? <laughs> and maybe part of it, maybe we should actually, and I know you're not going to want to do this ever, but I think pulling the sketches out the way we do, like when you just watch random sketches right. here and there, doesn't give you the overall effect. Okay. Because I'm not getting the Terry Gilliam. You're not getting right. You're not getting the cartoons. You're not getting the bits that aren't going for jokes that are just weird. Mm -hmm. That are just kind of weirdly disturbing. Like the experience of watching an episode is very different than the experience of watching just like one sketch pulled out of the episode. So maybe that's my fault. Maybe I just we we just need to go back and watch. I'm not doing. I have the entire box set. Yes, I know. With all 45 episodes, we could just sit down and and do that. No. This isn't even, and this is the thing, this is not going to be an exercise in me pissing on Python or trying to dissuade anyone from loving Python. Again, I absolutely get it. Totally get it. I'm just not, I'm not going to be the the Python cheerleader. I'm just not going to do it. I respect it. I understand it. It doesn't, you know, make my heart flutter. Okay, so this is you. This is uh, David Free writing at The Atlantic. He says, I concede that there are people who don't find the parrot sketch funny at all. I didn't say I didn't find it funny at all. I know a couple of them personally. (laughs) They are unmoved by the sight of John Cleese in his raincoat, wielding that stuffed parrot and saying, it's bleeding demised. I know them, but I can't help them. (laughs) I am beyond saving. This is me in the church burning in hell. I am beyond saving. The BBC would like to announce that the next scene is not considered suitable for family viewing. It contains scenes of violence involving people's heads and arms getting chopped off, their ears nailed to trees, and their toenails pulled out in slow motion. There are also scenes of naked women with floppy breasts. And also, at one point, you can see a pair of buttocks. And there's another bit where I swear you can see everything. But my friend says it's just the way he's holding the spear. (laughs) Because of the unsuitability of the scene, the BBC will be replacing it with a scene from a repeat of Gardening Club for 1958. Now, back to the story. Okay, well, let's, all right, well, let's segue into talking, since you you have created a, you know, a synergy between these two <laughs> themes here that is natural to our episode today, okay. so, because Life of Brian is about religion. Sure. <laughs> yes. Um, 
It apparently started as a joke because after Monty Python and the Holy Grail came out in 75, it was a huge hit. And then reporters kept asking them, what's your next movie going to be? And somebody, they disagree about who it was, most people say it was Eric Idle, started telling reporters the next movie was going to be called Jesus Christ Lust for Glory. (laughs) (laughs) Just as a joke, that's the title he came up with. And then apparently they started thinking about this and they actually started seriously thinking about doing like a, a, you know, a New Testament Mm -hmm. movie. And they pretty quickly realized that there was nothing funny about Jesus. That Jesus himself was (laughs) not funny. Not a comedic figure. (laughs) Not a comedic figure, not a figure you could really make fun of. (laughs) And so they came up with this alternate story, which I won't spoil for you, but... You know, what several of them have said, John Cleese has said that the comedy is not about Jesus, it's about the people who followed Jesus. Sure. He said it's about the guy who showed up five minutes after the miracle happened (laughs) and, like, heard about it and misinterpreted what he heard and just got it all wrong. Okay. That that's what the movie is about. So they they started writing this, this script. They got financing because again holy grail had been a huge hit Mm -hmm. they got financing from emi they they went into pre-production they had their locations scouted in tunisia where they were going to film where apparently there was this whole cottage industry of jesus movies there were like existing sets from previous jesus movies in tunisia where they couldn't use and like all the extras there the locals had been in previous movies at this point (laughs) So they had it all set up, and then some higher up at EMI actually read the script (laughs) and said, no fucking way are we making this movie making fun of Jesus. (laughs) So suddenly all the financing had fallen through. And then, and I said we would come back to the Beatles, George Harrison... Of course it was George. ...said, I want to see that movie, and mortgaged his fucking house... (laughs) To pay for this movie. Of course it was George. I love, he's my, he's always been my favorite. I See, love this George. is what I, everybody you love, loves Monty Python, and yet you will not get on the damn bandwagon. <laughs> so then the movie, they, they, they went off and made the movie with George Harrison's money. <laughs> that he, yeah. And this was, I mean, I think it's obvious from the movie, but it's also just when you hear them talk about it. This was everybody involved working at the height of their game. Mm-hmm. It was, you know, because they had always squabbled. They had always fought about stuff. Many of them had been at various times dissatisfied with the product they were putting out. This seems to be the one time when it all just came together. Right. You know, John Cleese, who was the most bitter of any of them <laughs> and the most cranky of any of them, he was the first one to leave the TV show. Mm-hmm. He says this is far and away the best product. Monty Python ever produced the one he's happy with. It was, we can talk about after we watch the movie, it was incredibly controversial. There were protests. Mary Whitehouse, who was this famous right-wing religious figure in Great Britain, you know, she was the one who led the, the protests against everything. Mm-hmm. Anything related to sex on television, anything right. related to violence. Right. And she had, I think it was the year before Life of Brian came out, brought the first private prosecution for blasphemy against uh, a publication called Gay News that had published a sort of homoerotic poem about Jesus. Okay. UK had blasphemy laws still on the books from common law times, and she brought a successful prosecution under these laws and ended up getting the publisher of Gay News like a nine-month suspended jail sentence. Wow publishing this poem so it was just an insane time to be releasing this movie right so yes this whole blasphemy thing became a whole thing there were protests all the religious groups came out against it john cleese and michael palin actually debated the film on a uk talk show against like a catholic bishop this and is the itchy and scratchy other... episode exactly. <laughs> exactly. Itchy and scratchy. exactly okay got it um all of which probably just helped Oh, of course. The film. Of I mean, it, it did get banned in certain local councils and all of that. Mm-hmm. But yeah, the, the movie did very well. Yep. So I don't know. It just, you know, when I was looking around for a movie for us to watch during Easter week, this just seemed like a <laughs> The a blasphemous film. Satire <laughs> are, about Christ. We are recording this on the day before Easter Sunday. Yes. 
Well, I mean, you know, my usual fare is much more respectful, so. Well, I figured we had to watch it today, because I know tomorrow you'll be wanting to sit down <laughs> with the Ten Commandments and watch bare-breasted Edward G. Robinson, because that's apparently your fetish. First of all, no. It's all about Yul Brenner with the little braid at the nape of the neck there. That's just all it's about. That really is all it is. Owen Meany in John Irving's A Prayer for Owen Meany calls that a male nipple movie. <laughs> it is a male nipple movie. It absolutely is. It's terrible, but I love it so much. It's so fucking corny. So the burning bush scene is ridiculous, but I love it. I think any scene with Charlton Heston in it is ridiculous. It's going to be ridiculous. But he comes down with like the gray hair because he's been like imbued with the spirit of the Lord. And it's just, I'm all in and I'm all in. Well, speaking of Charlton, that was my other option for doing on during Holy Week was Ben-Hur. Which would have been another... Which I have not seen, yeah. Yeah, another biblical right. Charlton Heston epic. And I just thought, fuck it, Life of Brian's going to be more fun. <laughs> you have to understand, I have grown up being very, very respectful and reverent of, of Easter Sunday. It was, a, it was a big deal. Like, you had to learn speeches. We would give little Easter mm. speeches. Do you remember any of them? I don't. I think one of them was called He is Risen. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, the speech got longer the older you got. And you still had to memorize it. And it was, like, a huge deal. Um, but you got a new outfit and some, you know, patent leather shoes. And <laughs> they gave out little Easter baskets. So it was, yeah. I mean, Easter was very big in, in my family and in the church. So See, I did not grow up that way. <laughs> Easter, East, to the extent Easter existed in our house, it was about the candy. <laughs> You got a little basket of candy that had something to do with a rabbit. I never understood what the fuck the rabbit was. Yeah. Like, church was not a thing. Yeah. This is This is why I like Life of Brian as my <laughs> Easter movie. This is, I just simply did not grow up that way. So maybe you will be offended. You know, I mean, possibility. I, no, I, I've seen things that have, you know, taken Christianity and all of that to task, and I have not been offended. Um, so I, I don't think that I will be screaming, you know, blaspheme. <laughs> At this movie or anything like that. I'm sure it will be great. So what are you expecting from this experience? I mean, I'm expecting it to be funny. Um, yeah, I'm expecting it. I, I feel like I'm going to be like I was with Holy Grail and the, the sketches where I'm sitting there going, yep, I understand why this is funny. <laughs> you may like it better. This is their most narratively coherent film. Mm-hmm. Like it's not like even Holy Grail to some extent is like an assemblage of sketches. Mm-hmm. Just related to a theme. This one actually, I think, it has a story. Mm-hmm. If I'm, and I haven't watched it in a lot of years, but it actually has a narrative and right. there's, a, there's an actual story you follow from beginning to end through it. So okay, we'll see. I read a book about Barabbas. I think in high school. Barabbas. He was the guy, the gentleman who I believe Jesus took his place on the cross. Oh. If I'm remembering it correctly, I think I still have that book. Like, like, just random shit. Okay, well, you feel free to drop in some random knowledge. About Barabbas. About Barabbas, <laughs> yes, we have this discussion. That'll really go over well. I, our listening figures are just going to skyrocket on that one, I think. I think we should put on our NPR voices and talk about Barabbas <laughs> and the crucifixion. I think that that's a good way to use our time. Stay tuned, listeners. <laughs> Don't go away. I'll throw in some shits and fucks if that'll keep you listening. Everyone knows the glorious story of the child born in a faraway manger. Well, this isn't that story. <laughs> this is Monty Python's all-new Life of Brian. He was born into the golden age of Roman rule. Do we have any crucifixions today? 139, sir. Special celebration. It was a time of miracles. I was blind, now I can see. Friendly persuasion and gracious invaders. But there was just one thing on everyone's mind. Sex, 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 that's all they think about her. In those days, getting stoned wasn't against the law. It was the law. 
looked bad for the people of Jerusalem. Still a few crosses left. Until Brian dropped in. He was a born leader. Brothers, brothers, we should be struggling together. We are. A potential martyr. What would they do to me? Oh, you'll probably get away with crucifixion. Crucifixion? Yeah. First offense. And his mother's joy. And now it's up to Brian to deliver a despairing nation from the throes of oppression. <laughs> Tough luck, Jerusalem. This is the life of Brian. <laughs> just when you thought you were saved. It's Monty Python's Life of Brian. He wasn't the Messiah. He was a very naughty boy. Okay, during the break, Nikia and I watched Monty Python's Life of Brian. Nikia, let's, let's start with uh, a few thoughts about the film from... Rabbi Abraham Hecht, president of the Rabbinical Alliance of America, when this film came out. He said, it is a blasphemous, sacrilegious film (laughs) and an incitement to possible violence. We have never come across such a foul, disgusting, blasphemous film before. Life of Brian is a vicious attack upon Judaism and the Bible, and a cruel mockery of the religious feelings of Christians as well. This film is so grievously insulting that we are genuinely concerned that its continued showing could result in serious violence. I wish that was the film I'd watched. That was not the film that I watched. Wow. You were not incited to violence? I was not incited to violence. I actually thought it was a fairly tame sort of critique. It really is. When you when we went into it, you were telling me about all the, that, you know, it had been banned for blasphemy. And I was like, yep. really? This is what you were salty about? <laughs> That's, wow. Okay. So you don't you don't think it was worthy of a, a major protest? No, or... I definitely don't think it was going to incite anyone <laughs> to riot or anything like that. No. So how how did you react to Life of Brian? I see why people think it's funny. <laughs> oh, we're back to this again. <laughs> I didn't laugh. Like you were sitting there. I with me know. The whole time, I sat there. And I didn't laugh. I mean, I like tittered a little to myself. But it wasn't the sort of riotous thing for I just I mean I will say I don't think it's as laugh out loud funny as Holy Grail is. Okay. Which I also wasn't You also were not enraptured by like mm-hmm. I will pee myself laughing watching Holy Grail. Okay. There are sequences in there that are just as funny as anything ever captured on film. Mm-hmm. And I don't think Life of Brian matches it. Mm-hmm. But I do think it's it's a better film as a film. Because it's a narrative. Right. Right. I think Holy Grail is kind of all over the place. So mm-hmm. when it works, it works. And there's long sequences when it doesn't work right. at all. It's more and like I think this is almost. much more even and much more controlled. I think their humor is much more controlled in this one. Mm-hmm. But you were not particularly amused. No, I mean, I enjoyed it. It's it's It was good. I just, I didn't really laugh really at all. And <laughs> I feel terrible. Like, I really do feel bad about this one because I know... It is the Holy Grail. Well, because I understand that it is sort of this, it is the foundation of a lot of comedy, and a lot of the comedy that I love, you know, comes out of this Monty Python ethos. So I don't understand the disconnect with me and Monty Python. I really don't. I can't even explain. I I don't know what it is, but I sat there the whole time going, yes, I see why that's funny. (laughs) Yes, I see why someone would laugh at that. But I wasn't actually laughing at it. Your Honor, the prosecution is willing to. stipulate to the fact that the film in question is amusing right exactly let's move on i see why we call this a comedy Uh um so then when it wasn't you know ridiculously funny it also wasn't necessarily provocative enough to then pique my interest there so much so you would have liked it to be more offensive yeah i mean if you're gonna gonna do it do it i think the only moment where i was like oh they went there was when um Brian confronts his mother about the fact that he is half Roman, that she had, you know, was it clear that she was raped by a Roman soldier? Was that the understanding? Well, at first. At first, right. That's how they say at first it was raped. So, (laughs) right. Um, So, and he says, you know, absolutely not, I'm Jewish. And then he's, you know, storming off and then says basically every 
Jewish slur yes. known to man. That was the one time I was like, oh, damn, that's... <laughs> and proud of it. Right. Yes. Yes. So, yes, exactly. I think that's probably the only one. A kike, a big nose, exactly. a Red Sea pedestrian. Like, oh, are we going to say all of those? Okay. <laughs> but otherwise, I thought it was fairly tame. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and there's the blackface, which... Yeah, it sort of opens with with John right, Cleese that, in blackface as one of the three wise men. I hadn't remembered. They did that fairly often, actually. There was no reason for him to be in blackface. No one else was in blackface. <laughs> and there's John Cleese in blackface offering myrrh or whatever he was offering. <laughs> Don't worry so much about the myrrh next time. No, worry about the blackface <laughs> next time. But okay. Okay, so it's yes, we funny. see... It's oh, funny! Sorry. It's like that. <laughs> <laughs> All right, well, let's talk about Brian. Hapless Brian. Hapless Brian. This is Graham Chapman, the late, great Graham Chapman, who they all say, and I think it's probably true, was one of the best actual actors in the group. Mm. I think he and John Cleese probably are the best actors versus just being straight comedians mm-hmm. in the group. Um, so he did tend to get the lead. He was the he was King Arthur in Holy Grail and got the lead in these things, um, despite their need to accommodate the fact that he drank like a fish. Oh. He, yes, he was a notorious alcoholic and was constantly drunk. He apparently for this one, this is when he started to stop drinking mm-hmm. to, in making this movie. But like in Holy Grail, they said he couldn't, he couldn't remember two lines oh, wow. in a row together. He was so smashed all the time. But I think he's good in this. Yeah, no, I think he does a good job of playing, again, like this sort of hapless kind of character where everything is sort of happening around him and to him. Mm-hmm. He's not really driving much of anything. And the sort of non-heroic hero kind of thing of like he's not particularly wise or smart. smart or even he doesn't even necessarily have a, a strong sort of moral center, really. Like, it's not... Right. It's just kind of like, well, I just think everybody should be nice to everybody and think for yourselves, and that's about it. And, you know, even in the scenes where he's brought before Pontius Pilate and when he's being crucified, you know, the sort of heroic thing would be to sort of, you know, take that with no sort of protestation necessarily or, or to, to sort of talk about the injustice of the act itself when mm-hmm. he's really... But I'm Roman. Like, you just can't do this because I'm Roman. <laughs> right. <laughs> so right. It's just like... <laughs> All right, well, let's just go through a few scenes here. So we start out with the scene in the manger. Sure. And then realize pretty quickly that this is... The wrong manger. The wrong manger. The manger next door to the important manger. Mm-hmm. And that's our that's one of our two glimpses of Jesus in the entire movie. Mm-hmm. That's the first one was when he's as a baby. And then in, I think it's the very it's next the scene, the, the open, we get mm-hmm. the Sermon on the Mount. Right. Jesus is treated completely respectfully. There's yes. no, no, they're not taking the piss out of Jesus no. at all. No. We start out showing Jesus with the Sermon on the Mount, and then we pan back through the crowd to the very back of the crowd where people can barely hear what's being said, <laughs> and things get a little irreverent there. Yes. Something about cheesemakers, I believe. <laughs> Blessed are the cheesemakers. Blessed are the cheesemakers. Which, yes, let's bless cheesemakers. <laughs> Cheese is magnificent for those that eat it. And a guy's picking his nose, and then there's an argument about big noses, and yeah. Yeah. And they're just kind of misinterpreting everything Jesus is saying. Right. The Greek shall inherit the earth, etc. Exactly. Um, the I think the only other mention we actually have of Jesus, and this to me is one of the more inspired ideas in the film, is the ex-leper. Okay. Oh, <laughs> Who was pissed like, that Jesus killed him? Was like, you fucked up my job. Exactly. <laughs> like, I was making my living off being a leper, and you just came along and cured me without even asking me. <laughs> no good deed goes unpunished, man. <laughs> Not even Jesus. <laughs> That was another moment that, that, was, I actually that people like got that. offended with. Oh, really? Yeah. <laughs> Reducing one of Jesus' miracles to this. It's an inconvenience, really. <laughs> it was my trade. Bloody do-gooder. <laughs> yeah, I mean, so, and we had talked about that um, going into it, was that, you know, they realized that you can't really make a comedy film about Jesus because he's just not going to be a funny character. There's really, you can't really take the piss out of Christ. Mm-hmm. Um, you have to find another way to sort of send up. Uh, it's not even really taking a dig at faith. It's more about sort of hypocrisy than it is anything else. 
Well, so I think that's one of the interesting questions about the film is what is it actually satirizing? Mm -hmm. What is it actually going after? Right. I think it's about shedding light on the sort of absurdity and hypocrisy of some parts of organized religion, the sort of closed-mindedness and fundamentalism that you can find in certain spaces. Yeah, that's that's how John Cleese describes it. He says it's about closed systems of thought. And so having Jesus be sort of this peripheral character that we don't really see or hear from very much. So it's not about mocking Christ. It's not about mocking faith. I think it's about mocking those who have sort of abandoned the teachings of Christ and are doing so in the name of Christ, right? Right. So the the sort of hypocrisy around that. um, I mean, that's one of the things I found interesting about the debate around this film. And if you go on YouTube and watch the the actual debate that John Cleese and Michael Palin had with these two religious leaders, mm-hmm. they completely reject the argument that the movie's not about Christ. They say, of course, it's about Christ, mm-hmm. which I find interesting because it's what the movie is actually about is about the people who claim to be Christian. Christian. Right. So they're seeing the film that way and saying, well, of course, it's about Christ. When really, it's kind of about them. Right. But they think all their actions are in the name of Christ. Right. So then it becomes, well, if you're talking about us, then you're talking about Christ. And it's like, well, no, I'm talking about how you have completely misinterpreted (laughs) (laughs) what Christ was teaching. Um, So, yeah, I mean, I think it just comes down to sort of hypocrisy and um, fanaticism. I think two scenes in particular sort of set it up actually Three scenes in particular set it up really nicely. <laughs> so you have the first scene. <laughs> Sorry, that was a very Monty Python-esque yeah, right. thing you just did. See, I'm Monty Python. So one was the Sermon on the Mount scene yeah. where you had the followers in the back who couldn't understand exactly what he was saying. Yeah. So you get that sort of very literal issue of Christians misinterpreting right. the teachings of Christ. Already, right Already, up on the spot, right. You're there. in the moment, the message is, no, is getting... You know, it's like a game of telephone. Exactly. Like the message There's no, is getting, you know... Intermediary there, you are literally listening to Christ and you're getting the message wrong. So that was the first one. The second one is when Brian falls down and ends up on this ledge that's like a row of prophets who are all just spouting all this nonsense. And he goes up there and he's basically sort of just saying, just be good people and be kind to people. And they're not really understanding what he's saying. And like, well, can you, I don't really get what you're saying. And then they start fixating on sort of um, objects. Objects. Right. Right. So it's like his, you know, a gourd that he had right. in his hand has right. not become... This is, this is the moment when he becomes right. the Messiah is when he says to them, don't follow me. Exactly. I'm not the Messiah. Right. And he drops his sandal and he drops the gourd, the gourd that he was carrying. They become these sort of sacred objects that everyone is worshipping. Um, and he's... I was, you know, this is ridiculous. I'm not trying to teach you anything. Right. I, these are not sacred in any way. Um, and then when they follow him back to his home and the, like, you know, thousands of people are gathered outside his window yeah. waiting for his teachings... And he's saying, you know, you are all individuals. And they say, yes, we are all individuals. (laughs) So so it's just mocking this idea of um, groupthink and anti-intellectualism that you can find in some spaces within Christianity. Um, And the splintering, which is a big theme that happens throughout the movie that, you know, and again, in that same scene where it's one guy picks up the sandal and says, the sandal is the symbol. And then the other one says, reject the sandal, follow the gourd. Mm -hmm. None of it about anything that Christ has said. Right. Or or even anything that Brian has said. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, the fact of anybody boycotting this film is sort of weird to me. Because the character of Jesus is not at the forefront of the film. But... I think there's a thread in there that is saying that the teachings of Christ at it, at their base, you know, without the sort of third party filtering that you get through a lot of organized religion is right and moral. Yeah. So <laughs> like that's something we should all just be agreeing on. But see, that's not what, no, it's not about Jesus. And like you said, Jesus's actual message. I mean, it's basically what Brian says. Right. He's not as articulate as Jesus right. is, but you know, he says, yeah, think for yourself and be a nice person. Mm-hmm. Like that's it. Mm-hmm. But I do think the film is fundamentally an attack on organized religion. Mm-hmm. And I think that's why people reacted to it, that religious people reacted to it the way they did, because it does suggest that all of these things that you think of as sacred, that you organize your life around, right. may have fundamentally come out of misunderstandings right. and political squabbles. Mm-hmm. And all of this that, you know, whether you worship the sandal or the gourd, <laughs> like that is ridiculous. And for you to build your life around that 
and to feel so strongly about right. whether you're a sandal person or a gourd person is ridiculous. Is ridiculous. Right. Um, so I do think it is an attack on organized religion. Organized yes. religion. Yes. Now, ironically, it seems to have brought all of these splintered organized religions together <laughs> because that's the one thing they could agree on is that. <laughs> You know, that that's what they did not want to attack. Right. Is the idea that the things that they hold so sacred are important. Right. Because then you're going to fuck up the money. <laughs> well, well, now you're just getting <laughs> even more cynical than they get. They didn't even get to the money part. <laughs> that's, that's the missing scene, which, you know, they're selling gourds and selling sandals and building a megachurch around, you know. Yeah. I, I do think this film is as much about politics and fanaticism as it is about religion. Mm -hmm. And, you know, if you hear the Python guys talking about it, they'll say that, you know, a lot of this was a reaction to that sort of the radical 70s and, you know, all the different political groups, not necessarily religious. Mm -hmm. You know, you have the whole thing with the, the Judean People's Front versus the People's People Front of Judea, Judea and right. all of that. But I like the scene... It's, I think it's right after the Sermon on the Mount when they're in the Colosseum and John Cleese and his fellow fanatics are sitting there discussing the sermon. Mm -hmm. And, you know, John Cleese is like, well, what Jesus fails to realize is that the meek are the problem. <laughs> Which, again, is the kind of thing that, like, even today in the internet age right. feels, like, very relevant and very right. fresh. That that's just the hot take on, right. the, on the comments. And then the other guy saying, well, let's make sure we insert women here. So it's like, right. and women. Exactly. <laughs> yes, the intersectionality. <laughs> so, but yes, I mean, there was, there's, you know, the sort of skewering of the hypocrisy of organized religion and then the skewering of the sort of political class. Mm -hmm. One of the scenes that I liked was when the uh, People's Front of Judea was sort of discussing their uprising against imperialism and you know what have the romans ever done for us and everybody's like well sanitation aqueduct roads irrigation medicine public order and safety so it's just like... or you have the moment when uh john cleese's roman soldier is correcting his uh conjugation of yes. latin graffiti yes, which is, yes. that's a classic scene the latin teacher the right. british public school latin teacher which apparently John Cleese actually did for a little while after he got out of college as he taught Latin. Way to put that to work. <laughs> Can you explain to no, me? No, I know what you're going to ask, and no, I can't. Go ahead. What was that fucking, like, Star Wars Yeah, no, I can't explain that. Dropped in the middle there. <laughs> I don't know what that was trying to say. I, I don't know. No one knows. <laughs> I don't think they know. It was so weird. Yeah. I think it's just like a little deus ex machina moment where he like falls off the roof and then the UFO comes and picks him up. And mm -hmm. then the two we like spend Cyclops aliens. Two or three minutes with, you know, Kang and Kodo. <laughs> and then they just drop him back drop on the street and he just goes on like nothing happens. I mean, I don't know. You can, I guess you could interpret it. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Act of God. Act of God, that's one interpretation. <laughs> okay. That this was a time when just miracles and weird shit happened and sure. people just accepted them in stride. And I I don't I don't I think the answer is it's probably something that almost certainly Terry Gilliam came up with because <laughs> it's much more suited to one of his yeah. movies than it is to this movie. Uh they just thought it would be fun. Or, you know, Star Wars had come out a couple years earlier and they Marvel wanted to put in some sci-fi. I don't know. Okay. I have no explanation. Got it. You want, you want to talk about Pontius Pilate? That character was ridiculous. <laughs> I just... The speech impediment joke, I have a low tolerance for those sorts of things. Like, that gets tired for me pretty quick. And they rode that one pretty hard. Uh, yeah, that was just ridiculous. And the whole biggest dickest joke, it's just like, really? See, this to me is the beauty of Python, is that they work... <laughs> All ends of the spectrum. They do. They, they do the intellectual stuff. And the sophomore. And then they do yeah. biggest dickus. Yeah. Mm -hmm. My favorite example of that is there's a sketch in the show. It's a game show. Mm -hmm. And it's the All England Summarize Proust competition. <laughs> where people attempt to summarize Proust, Proust. <laughs> in search of lost time. <laughs> In like 15 seconds, and that's the game show, which is, you know, at at the intellectual end that's of the spectrum. End, yeah. And then they end that sketch saying, 
the announcer says, well, nobody did a particularly good job of summarizing Proust, so we're going to give the prize to the girl with the biggest tits. And that's how they get out of that sketch. So it's, you know, that's the full range of what Python did. I mean, it's it's about cookies and shadows. (laughs) What? Proust. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Cookies and shadows. Okay. You just won the and All flowers. England Summarized Bruce Competition. I think competition. I read like, part of the first book of that thing. <laughs> you got the gist of it. <laughs> Cookies and flowers and shadows. Uh, so yeah, Pontius Pilate is... I mean, the speech impediment, I was watching it trying to figure out if there's any purpose to And I don't think there is, except that it's making fun of how aristocratic right. people speak. Mm-hmm. Um, it doesn't, it doesn't feel particularly mean-spirited to no, me. No, There's been some, contra- in fact, Michael Palin in, uh, A Fish Called Wanda, which is not, it's not technically a Monty Python movie, but it's John Cleese and, mm-hmm. and Michael Palin. He plays a stuttering character. Mm-hmm. And again, there was some backlash for that. Michael Palin actually opened a center for stammering children. Oh, my God. To atone? Well, you know, we can question what his motives were. (laughs) But, yeah, mostly he made a career out of playing different speech impediments for laughs. Um, that, That is something that has definitely entered at least the British culture. In fact, I read there was a politician a few years ago who used that to attack one of his opponents Mm -hmm. who had... Oh, see, that's mean. ...who had a speech impediment and talked like that and, like, tweeted about him with the hashtag, Willis (laughs) Boyan, and then got in trouble for doing that. As he should have. That's (laughs) fucked up. I mean, yeah, I mean, that happens. I mean, that's in, what's that, um, marriage? And it probably should, probably should not. Like, it's an easy joke, and we probably shouldn't do those jokes, maybe, but I don't know. <laughs> I love Pontius Pilate. I love Biggest Dickus. I love the scene where Pontius is trying to get the guards to laugh. Oh, and he keeps saying Biggest Dickus? <laughs> he keeps saying Biggest Dickus, and the guards are trying not to laugh. And then he says, he has a wife, you know? <laughs> and you know at that point that they're just going to lose it. When he says, whatever the wife's name turns out to be, which, which turns out to be Incontinentia buttocks. See, I'm just never going to laugh at those You're jokes. never going to laugh at I'm that. I'm just not going to laugh at those jokes. I can't. With the speech impediment, that you tell the joke once and I'm maybe twice and I'm good. But if you keep hitting. No, that's the genius no, I is that it is keeps that you, going. Right, you say it so long that it goes from being okay too much to then it's back around to being funny again. I uh, Again, I understand the mechanics this is like, of it. This is like how you did not, you stubbornly refused to laugh. At the farting scene in Blazing Saddles. It's too long. And I, again, I understand the whole idea behind it is that you take it so long that it becomes not funny and then becomes funny again. I understand it, but it's just, it's too much for me. Too, and you and I talked about this with Blazing Saddles, which I thought if I were to compare the two, I would say Blazing Saddles is funnier to me mm-hmm. than Life of Brian. But I didn't laugh a lot. When during Blazing Saddles, except when he said, where are white women at? Which was like the funniest <laughs> that, thing to That me. was the first moment in that film that you actually burst out laughing. <laughs> so, I, yeah. So, I again, I understand why it's funny. I just I just imagine that you're just sitting there biting your tongue. I'm not, You're like though. the guards in Pontius's no. office. Just sitting there stubbornly no. trying not to laugh. I'm the dude in, you know, Mary Poppins singing the I love to laugh song. I love to laugh. <laughs> But I didn't, this was not like laugh out loud funny for me. It was like, oh, tee hee kind of thing. It wasn't laugh out loud funny. <sighs> right. And it hits my sweet spot of like humor and sort of religious films. Because mm-hmm. you know I have a thing for religious you films. You do have a thing for religious films. Love Stigmata. Terrible movie. Yes. Love The Prophecy. Terrible movie. Love The Ten Commandments Love as the we Ten were Commandments. just discussing. Terrible movie. <laughs> Here you have the miracle of the juniper bushes to go up against yes. the, the burning bush. and Nothing. Nothing, huh? Just nothing. I don't understand. <laughs> uh, what haven't we talked about? We have a so-called love story, sort of. With the woman with the big bush? <laughs> the burning bush. <laughs> See, like that but kind of, exactly. See, that's, no, like, that's, but that's what I feel like it is. No, like, it's just sort of... <laughs> We do have some gratuitous nudity thrown in there just for no reason. Well, you don't get to see penis often. So whenever mm-hmm. you see penis, it's just like, oh, there's a penis. <laughs> uh, fun fact there, since you bring it up. It was a prosthetic. 
It was not a prosthetic, but Graham Chapman was not circumcised, which was kind of a problem for the character he was playing. So that there was is some, historically like, inaccurate. Rubber band action or something. Oh, God. Going on there. Oh. oh. <laughs> which is dedication. That's unfortunate. That is dedication to the cause. That's. Nowadays, we would, you know, Photoshop that shit, but mm-hmm. no, they just, you just slapped a rubber band around the head there. And... That's terrifying. <laughs> Keep that in the upper room. Oh, my goodness. That's horrifying. <laughs> But yeah, I mean, it wasn't really a love story. She didn't seem to really love Brian. She was just sort of, again, another sort of fanatic mistaking him for a messiah that he was not. And then was very quick to let him be crucified. Well, yes, because she understood that he was... For the cause. ...dedicating himself to the cause. Except he wasn't (laughs) dedicating himself to anything. Well, that comes back to the thing about this, you know, to some extent just being about political movements and Mm -hmm. stuff. And even just about life. Like, I relate to the scenes of, and I don't remember whether they're the People's Front of Judea or the Judean People's (laughs) Front. I apologize to them. But just the endless meetings to Mm -hmm. try to get anything done. Like, that's applicable to any, (laughs) whatever field you're in. To the point where you're inactive. You can relate to that, (laughs) where they're just sitting there trying to come to a resolution. And she runs in, and she's like, no, he's being crucified right now. We can just go stop that. And they sit there, you know, going through through the motions. Have a resolution. Get the correct minutes. (laughs) All right, well, I guess we'll let's talk about the the crucifixion scene in the ending. Okay. Any thoughts? (laughs) Uh, the crucifixion scene. I mean, you you brought up uh, Barabbas. Barabbas. <laughs> so this is this is the Barabbas scene. We have Pontius offering to release one right. prisoner, and after much back and forth between him and the crowd, where they just throw out any name starting with R. <laughs> <laughs> right, but no, she finally the uh, burning bush woman calls out Brian. And so they her, her name is Judith. You don't need to reduce her to her her suit pelvic region. <laughs> You're absolutely right. Um, this is what happens when you stray from the church. Um, <laughs> right. So they decide to save Brian, and they go to save Brian, and they say they go to the sort of crucifixion site where they're like, what 140. I think they said. I think it was 140. That yes. Day. Mm-hmm. And they ask for Brian. And, of course, the guy goes, I'm Brian. He's not Brian. <laughs> and then everybody says, I'm Brian. They're not Brian. Which which is a parody of the Spartacus. Right. The I'm Spartacus scene, right? And they take the gentleman who said it first off the cross, and he's like, oh, no, no, I was joking. <laughs> yeah, no, I'm just kidding. I was totally just joking, and but he's freed anyway, so good on him. Uh, and then we have, you know, the very famous sing-along on the crucifix. <laughs> which was? Always look Genius? On- you know what? That is a very well done moment. Okay. I will say that. Yes, <laughs> that song with that sort of iconography is very well done. Just the idea of doing a song and dance number while on the crucifix. While on the crucifix, yes. Some of them doing a little dance with their legs. <laughs> it was very nice. And there is no, there is no resurrection scene. There is no, no happy yeah, ending. No. Brian dies in this film. Yeah. Yes, Brian dies on the cross. So the only happy ending we get is the song yeah. and that argument that... Life's a bullshit or something like that. Right. You just need to <laughs> smile through it. Which, you know, that's a religion I can get behind. <laughs> I mean, yeah, that's sort of a, a radical statement to be making. You know, one of the fundamental tenets of Christianity is this idea of uh, the resurrection of Christ. And the the sort of promise that though there will be hardships and everything in life, if you, you know, follow in the teachings of, of Jesus Christ, you will sort of be rewarded with right. this life after in um in heaven. Uh and you know, sort of forty acres and a mule for Christians. And <laughs> <laughs> then you have this musical number, you know, occurring during crucifixion. That's basically saying, well, life is shitty. You can just sort of laugh at it. That's the best you're going to get. And then you're just going to die. And like, there's no promise of sort of this sort of glorious right. hereafter. It's just right. like, no, this is what it is. And then that's the end. So. Which one suspects is as close the Python guys actually get to a religious yeah. belief. Yeah. And Cleese, I've seen Cleese in interviews say, like, when you're young, the fact that the world doesn't make sense really bothers you and you try to make sense of it. Mm -hmm. And then you get older and you kind of accept that it doesn't make sense and it doesn't bother you as much anymore. And you just laugh at it. Right. And that that's how you get through life. Mm -hmm. Um, So in a way, that is sort of the promise of (laughs) 
redemption <laughs> is that all you can do is laugh all at it. All you can it. do is laugh. Try to be a good person while you're here, and then you're just going to die. Yeah. And that's it. <laughs> <laughs> and if you go out on a good song, all the better. So that's a cheery Easter message, isn't it? I think so. See, to me it is, because that's kind of what I believe, so... <laughs> The only real grace is humor. That's really all you have. Okay, well, let's let's try to wrap this up. Let's get back to the film. So, did you have a favorite part of the film, of Life of Brian? Yes. Uh, when Brian tells the uh, crowd of followers to fuck off, and they say, how should we fuck off, the Lord? <laughs> That's my favorite part. That's a good line. There's a lot of good lines There's in this. There are some good lines in there. That's probably my favorite. <laughs> and did you have a least favorite part? I think the pilot stuff went out a little too long. Just a little too long. And and I know that's like sacrilege to say, but it's just a little bit too long for me. It's too much hitting that joke. Are you talking about the, the early biggest dickest part? The, the, or the later... I mean, well, both, when really. When he's offering to release Wadawick right. the Wapist. Yes. Both just go on way too long. You just don't understand fine comedy, I apparently. Do, the, the point is, is that I do understand. <laughs> I just don't find it funny. Okay, so where does this film fall in the uh, fall in the canon? Is this a, an Easter favorite? Oh no, Ten Commandments! No, the Ten Commandments forever and always will be my Easter movie. This movie could not topple Yul Brenner with the side braid and the torso as Pharaoh. It's just not going to happen. I mean, it's basically the same movie. No, it isn't at all. It really isn't. It has more dick than Ten Commandments. Even if it's less homoerotic than okay, the Ten you, Commandments. You're seeing things there that aren't there. I'm really not. You're seeing things there that aren't there. <laughs> and bonus. That, that scene in the Ten Commandments where Vincent Price straps up John Derrick in his bedroom to whip him. You really? I'm reading into that? Yeah, you are. Okay. Yeah, you are. It's basically the setup for a porno film. <laughs> See, and this is An you. S&M straying porno from film. Christ. This is you. I'm okay with straying that. Straying from Christ. Shame on you. At least it didn't have any blackface. It had some questionable tans. It has white people <laughs> playing Egyptians. Yul Brenner's heritage is Russian, I hate to tell you. Charlton Heston. He looks so good all bronzed up, He's a really white dude. He is. And everybody in that film is, is wearing white. a little blackface. They are do- It's they not are, black, but they are all they're bronzed, bronzed up. up. They're yes. all bronzed up. I recognize the problems with the Ten Commandments. <laughs> and yet, <laughs> it is so ingrained in my person. I cannot give it up. I just can't do it. Fair enough. So it is written. So it shall be done. <laughs> That's our show. We want to thank you for listening, and we hope you'll join us again next week. Nakia, you have never seen a Rocky movie. I've seen Creed. Okay, that's not a Rocky movie. I mean, it's sort of a Rocky movie. The best Rocky movie, wasn't it? We can have that argument next week. (laughs) As we sit down to give you a sampling of the Rocky Balboa phenomenon with... That sounds like more than one. (laughs) When you say sampling. I think to get the full spectrum of the experience, you need to watch at least two. So we are going to watch 1976's Rocky and 1985's Rocky IV. Why Rocky IV? Well, for one thing, because you like to quote Drago, even though you have not seen that movie. Have we breaking? <laughs> it's like being in the room with Dolph Lundgren. <laughs> I have a gift. In the meantime, you can find us on the web at unaffiliatedcritic.com. Follow us on Twitter at FreeRangeCritic. Send an email to michael at unaffiliatedcritic.com. In any of these places, we encourage you to suggest a movie that Nakia desperately needs to see to make her life complete. Until next time, remember, true love means making your partner watch movies they really, really don't want to watch. Probably some defect on my part, but... We really should have talked about this before we got married. We should have talked about a lot of shit before we got married. (laughs) Prince being number one. Okay. How I married... Your general lack of love of music.
is just, I don't understand <laughs> how that got past me because that's really very important to me. I thought about that actually when you were talking about the church thing mm -hmm. of like sitting there and being like, I get it. I get why this is important, but it just doesn't move me. Mm -hmm. That's sort, that is sort of how I feel about music. How the fuck is that possible? Like, I though? understand how people are super into music and that music can just be so important to them. I just don't get it. I just don't feel it. It no. just doesn't do that for me. But I don't know how that's possible. It's music. But that's how I feel about you <laughs> no! understanding but this is, Monty Python. But the thing is, Monty Mel Python Brooks, is a very specific thing versus music, but there's so many different types of music, and you aren't really passionate about any of it. So that's like, even if it was like, I'm really into classical, no. I'm really into country, no. I really like, you know, the sitar, anything. But no, there's there's nothing that really gets you going and i don't under i don't understand how that's possible that and food those would be the two things where if we were on a first date and we were having this conversation I'd be like oh well fuck this <laughs> <laughs> he's not into music he's not into, he's not food. into music he's not into food those are two of the most important things in my life why am i talking to this person and he's white why am i talking to this person <laughs> okay I, that was gratuitous was it? the white thing well because when you add all of it up though like the white thing is okay if you also have all these other things oh i see do you see how you just turned that we were talking about your defects and then we just turned it around and started talking well because i just had the one monty python i see what other defects do i have it's only like an hour show. That's fine. What other defects? I'm deeply interested in this. What other defects do I have? You have no defects. You are perfectly perfect in every way. Oh, dude, fuck off. How should I fuck off, my lord? 